Thanks for tuning in to the ICEF podcast. This episode's main sponsor is BMO, Bank of Montreal. Our Keys to the Market sponsor this month is Higher Education Marketing, HEM. I guess in terms of the challenges, you know, we need to take a step back in terms of recruitment in India and see ourselves as part of an ecosystem. So it's not just, uh, you know, the agent or the visa officers or the institution, but a network or an ecosystem that influences what we all like to describe as the student experience. And, you know, I like to think about it in terms of us working together um, as a self-regulatory group of individuals or entities or organizations inside of that ecosystem. This and more in this new episode of the ICEF podcast, your monthly review for professionals in the international student recruitment industry. As in each regular episode, we start with a brief update on recent news and developments in our sector, followed by the main topic of discussion, which this month is quality assurance in recruitment from India. We'll conclude the episode with our monthly Keys to the Market section, where this time we focus on Canada, one of the world's most popular study destinations. Indeed, a full episode ahead of us, recorded entirely here at ISAF Vancouver, where more than 1,000 North America-focused international education professionals have come together. Now, Craig, I usually welcome you to the ISAF podcast, but this time it's, it's a home game for you. We're in Canada, as mentioned, which kind of makes me big at this time. Indeed it does. Welcome to the podcast, Martin, and welcome to Canada. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Craig. It's a pleasure. And actually, really nice to sit next to you in person. It's this once-in-a-year occasion, isn't it? Now, Greg, let's start, as always, with our news and developments section. And we have a lot to choose from as all relevant topics and trends were discussed, of course, here in Vancouver. One, for example, is the rapid evolution of so-called ISA loans, where ISA stands for Income Share Agreement. The option for high potential students to get a student loan based on what is often an AI-powered assessment of their future career options, whereby the loan then gets reimbursed via a preset percentage of their future salaries. Yeah, fascinating to see how this model is beginning to be more widely adopted. It's a it's a model that's been present in the sector for a few years now and uh, really brought into international education by private financing companies like Empower or Prodigy Finance that have uh, built a business model that relies on uh, making student loans not on the basis of the uh, borrower's credit rating or the type of security they can offer for the loan, but on their uh, estimated earning potential, their ability to pay back a book of future income. It's interesting to see these new companies introduce these new solutions based on new technologies, whereas you would consider that banks are fairly conservative in this respect. But we do see various banks now uh, picking up the same model, or at least starting to consider the opportunities that exist in this field, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it just reflects the continuing effort on the part of major banks in Canada and in other destinations to tune their services uh, for international students uh, or for other new arrivals in, in those countries. And uh, certainly we see in Canada that the, uh, the major chartered banks here are all very focused on serving that new arrival segment. And uh, it's leading to new types of services, uh, new types of options for international students in particular. Right. 
Yeah, in the panel that I just mentioned, we had banks um, representatives from, from CIBC, Simply, RBC, and BMO. And indeed, we concluded that it technically would mean broader access to international education to a larger number of students uh, based, of, of course, on their competences. Definitely. I think that's one of the effects here, and that's the effect of all such uh, financing uh, offers that we see across the sector. It's meant to provide banking services and loan supports for students that may not otherwise qualify for them. And students, depending on what, what country they're coming from, they may be students that are sort of outside of the traditional banking system. And this is, this is part of the issue in serving uh, a broader international student market, is that you may be dealing with uh, students or families that are effectively sort of unbanked in their home countries. And so it's a matter of setting up, uh, you know, a full suite of banking services, including local supports for those students as they're heading to their study destinations. Yeah, financing is, of course, so important, crucial, of course, for anyone who uh, aspires to study overseas. I believe, Craig, in the session uh, that actually focused on recruitment from Latin America, there were some other suggestions or, or made or concerns raised about the affordability of studying overseas. Yeah, it, it was a really important theme in that session. Actually, our colleague uh, Karen Flores was leading a uh, fascinating panel discussion with uh, really experienced agents from Argentina, Brazil, uh, Mexico and Colombia. And it just had a, a really wide ranging discussion about uh, recruiting students across uh, Latin America from those key Latin American markets in particular. And one of the themes that came through loud and clear in that uh, discussion was the importance of uh, payment options, payment flexibility for students. The, there was a lot of discussion about how families are used to making uh, installment payments, for example, uh, or paying, you know, uh, you know, sort of at the last minute, if I may put it that way, before a program begins. And so, you know, the, the agents were very, uh, I think offered some really important insights in that respect and in, in terms of the importance of that payment flexibility uh, and also caution, you know, not to make things too flexible. You want to you just create some clear boundaries and clear rules for, uh, for payments for incoming students, but, um, but give them as much flexibility as you can, I guess was the main takeaway. I guess that's a great takeaway. Um... Because more flexibility would, of course, means more opportunities for students to engage in studies uh, overseas. Now, financing is a, is such an important topic in our industry that we have actually decided to introduce a uh, dedicated theme next year called ISAF Finance in our Canada event. So we'll keep everyone up to speed on that initiative, and uh, we hope that we will have uh, another set of very interesting conversations in our next year's. I think we can look forward to it. Look forward to that as well. Coming up, the main topic of this month, quality assurance in recruitment from India. But first, here is a brief message from our main sponsor, BMO, Bank of Montreal. Studying in Canada is an exciting opportunity, and we at BMO, Bank of Montreal, are here to make the process easier. For students from a qualifying student direct stream country who need a bank account and guaranteed investment certificate to meet Canada's student direct stream study permit guidelines, BMO can help set up their bank accounts instantaneously before they arrive so that they're ready to hit the ground running. Qualifying student direct stream countries include China, India, Philippines, Vietnam, Pakistan, Morocco, Peru, and more. Here are some of the benefits for a student GIC from BMO. Save time by getting the GIC and bank account with one single online application. 
Send up to 75,000 Canadian dollars so they have access to the money they need when they arrive. We're Canada's oldest bank, and more than 12 million customers count on us to take care of their banking needs. International students can apply via www.bmo.com forward slash pre arrival. And now for the main topic of this month, quality assurance in recruitment from India. So by way of introduction, I want to start just by taking you back to a moment about 25 years ago where I felt like I saw the future. It was the late 1990s. I was then the international recruitment manager at a, uh, a university here in BC. And I joined what I suppose was probably one of the first Team Canada missions for education specifically to India. And uh, in honor of our visit, the High Commission in New Delhi uh, organized a special exhibition of, uh, Canadian for Canadian education. And there were maybe 12 or 14 of us that were on this mission. So they set us up outdoors on the grounds of the, uh, at the High Commission. There's a really big lawn, big grounds there. And uh, they put us down at one end of the, of the property, a little row of booths. It was really nice, like a, almost like a country fair. And uh, the appointed time came. The gates were thrown open at the appointed hour. We were all stood down at one end of the, of, the, of the grounds, like I say. And you have to picture this, because what we saw as we were sort of chatting with each other and looked up as the gates opened, hundreds, I guess thousands of people that had been waiting to come in just came up, started in this wave started coming across the grounds. And when I, like arms pumping, knees up, like running across the grounds, and we had no idea what was happening. I've never seen anything like it before or since. It was an incredible moment. They, they just landed in the stands all at once. And instead of sort of, you know, one-to-one -one discussion, like, or one-to-two, like you might have in a, normally in an education fair, it was all of a sudden we were running seminars for like 50, 60 people in front of every booth. It was just, it was really, just the energy was unbelievable. That was my first glimpse into the sort of the scale and the intensity of demand for higher education in India. And of course, we've seen that play out in the years, uh, in the years since. Um, meanwhile, Canada has explicitly uh, welcomed international students from around the world. Uh, we can see that, you know, even just in the last decade, the foreign enrollment base in Canada has grown by roughly three times, right? Leading up to COVID, up to the, when the pandemic started, Canada was the fastest growing destination by a considerable margin for the previous five years before the pandemic. Last year, year over year growth of 30% alone, right? So we've now, Canada has now passed the 800,000 student threshold for the first time. India is a huge part of that growth story, right? Back 10 years ago, there were about, just about 35,000 Indian students in Canada. And that represented at that time, I guess about 12% of the total international student population in Canada. As of last year, India is the number one sending market for Canada. There were about 320,000 Indian students in Canada at the end of last year. And that, that accounts for nearly four out of every 10 foreign students in Canada, right? Huge growth and a huge presence for, uh, for Indian students among the country's foreign student population. Growth like that, of course, is bound to come with challenges. We see this pattern playing out in other fast-growing destinations. Canada is no exception. So for, for one thing, that rapid expansion of the foreign student base has, puts a lot of pressure on 
admission staff, on housing, on student services, every type of capacity. I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit in our discussion today. But it opens the door to other issues as well. And I'm sure we've all been paying attention to media reports over the last couple of years where students, particularly Indian students, have been taken advantage of in some way. So there is the case of M College in Quebec, for example, where more than 500 students lost prepaid tuitions, totaling millions of dollars when that college was forced to close abruptly, went out of business. That college and two other sister colleges in Quebec. Complaints have been raised about other colleges in the country as well in terms of questionable business practices, questionable quality of programming and student services. Right? And most recently, hundreds of Indian students have been ordered out of the country by Canadian Border Services Agency because it was found that they had entered Canada using forged documents. It comes to light that the students had no idea they were using forged documents, but the documents were supplied by one particular uh, agency in India. Right? So these are obviously all cases of great concern. And I think we should be clear, we're talking about Indian students, this is in no way unique to the Indian market, nor is it in any way unique to Canada as a study destination. Really, this is like the law of large numbers at work, right? There are very large numbers of students moving between India and Canada, and so, you know, we have these examples in focus, and there are lessons to be learned here that could be applied to, you know, any sending market or any destination for that matter. And I think we should also be clear about this, that the, the central idea to the work that we're all doing is that the students are well supported before and after their arrival and that they have an excellent study abroad experience when they're here. Anything that falls short of that is a matter of great concern to everyone in this room, both in terms of the welfare of individual students, but also in terms of the longer term outlook, professionalism and quality of our sector, right? So that's kind of the, the context for our discussion today. And, and that's our background to get us uh, to sort of frame that discussion a little bit. So let's turn to the panel at this point and open up the discussion a little bit more. And maybe, Keith, I can, uh, can start with you if you don't mind. The scale of opportunity in India is obviously massive. But what are the challenges that come with recruiting in such a large and, and, and complex market as India? Yeah, thank you, Craig. And uh, hello, everyone. Um, it's nice to be here with you. I guess in terms of the challenges, you know, we need to take a step back in terms of recruitment in India and see ourselves as part of an ecosystem. So it's not just, uh, you know, the agent or the visa officers or the institution, but a network or an ecosystem that influences what we all like to describe as the student experience. And that ecosystem can either come together and effect positive change on that ecosystem, or there are failures or gaps in terms of uh, that ecosystem. And, you know, I like to think about it in terms of us working together um, as a self-regulatory group of individuals or entities or organizations inside of that ecosystem where, you know, we're focused on, you know, some of these gaps. For example, we all have heard about the gaps around exploitation of students, the fact that uh, many times uh, they don't feel welcomed. But before that, in terms of recruiting in India, how do we prepare them for their academic program? How do they prepare them for their financial means uh, when they come? How do we ensure that they are aware that there should be a link between their academic program 
and the job that they want to have? How do we ensure that they are prepared for housing? What do we need to put in place to ensure that from a health and wellness perspective, they have that, those supports, those familial supports, those informal supports, both in India and in Canada to support them. So there are lots of beyond the exploitations and some of the more common things that we hear in the media, there are many things below the water level that we don't see that are deeper. The isolation often that many of these students face. And so the challenges in India are for us, all of us, is really about not just the recruitment of these students, which we know, uh, let's be honest, it's not an extremely difficult proposition when you look at the value in terms of coming to Canada, getting an education, um, getting that postgraduate work permit, and then landing a job. The challenges with recruitment are failures around a code of conduct, if I, would, if I could call it that. Whereas an ecosystem, as partners, we're working towards a common goal in terms of supporting that applicant, that person, that human, to ensure that we put in all of the right steps, all of the right supports, all the right wraparounds to support them from their village to Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, what have you. So uh, those are some of the challenges that I see, Craig. And we'll just throw the question out to the, to the rest of the panel as well. Would anyone like to add anything then? Raul? Yes, uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, from the agent's uh, perspective, students in India, they need uh, personal attention from the qualified and experienced counselors. What's happening is, you know, a lot of students, uh, they don't know in which actual program they have to study, they have to apply, they have been just guided uh, over the phone. They don't know even, you know, who is the actual uh, agent, uh, you know, representing them. So from there, the duty of the consultant is to you know, guide the student properly from the first step. And if that happens well, then I think uh, the quality starts from there. Because guided initially for the program, uh, the career where the student wants to, to go, I think they'll be extremely uh, you know, important for the student in future. So that's the first step. And then uh, the next step is uh, for the students and parents, you know, they are always asking uh, for the best colleges, universities, uh, students can study. And that also has to be guided according to the student's uh, background. There are so many colleges and universities in Canada. And uh, the most important part is, you know, all college universities have their own academic requirements. In the other countries, what we see is they have a similar requirement as in Australia and New Zealand, you know, they have... Uh, basic requirements, but in Canada, every institute is having their own academic or IELTS requirement mostly. And then they have requirements for uh, these days, you know, uh, for the region also. In India, so what we are seeing uh, these days is like uh, as per uh, from north and south also, uh, they, they're just asking for different requirements. So from like uh, student who are uh, looking to study, I think uh, uh, in Canada, as an agent, you know, we are looking for an overall, uh, you know, best system for them from the starting, that they can be guided pretty well. Like, you know, the, the course selections are there. The student has to do a lot of course selections. 
Sometimes they are missing the courses also, you know, they don't know how to apply the courses. Then the next step is obviously the pre-departure. You know, it's very important that the institute should have uh, virtual uh, pre-departure sessions and personal also. Indian students, what happens is, you know, they like a lot of personal interaction. And if that happens well, then, you know, they know which institute they are going, which program they are going, which campus they are going. All these things initially informed to them, then I think they can be the best student for that college. And Kayla, you have the perspective, I mean, you're coming from Gus, you have a perspective of someone who's concerned with recruiting for multiple destinations and institutions across a variety of countries. Like, what's your take on, on recruiting in India now? What I think that global university systems and certainly lots of our partners and friends who are here in the room or listening online, what we have done well over the last couple of years is that we have taken this canary in the coal mine and we have taken decisive action to invest in tools and resources for agents and for institutions that help guard against what I would call poor fit applicants regardless of their source country. So when we take the money that we spend on our marketing automation tools, for example, what we're doing is investing in building a student onboarding journey that's going to take care of the exact kinds of things that he was describing, where agencies through sometimes no fault of their own have things like staff turnover, someone's a little less experienced. For everybody, it's somebody's first time recruiting a student when they're advising these applicants. And so what we're doing as a group is that we are stepping in to support our partners by providing them with these guided journeys that are going to walk the student through each step from the point that they've applied all the way through to the time that they arrive on campus. And from there, our student support services will take care of them. Uh, one of the things that we do need to be mindful of in this particular industry is that I do think that our ecosystem is healthy in terms of the fact that, like the immune system, when something happens, like, like some of these kinds of cases we've been describing where there's mass fraud, where there's people clearly acting with ill intent, that something is done, and bombastically so. So we have all seen documentaries, we've all seen news stories about the results of these ill effects. One of the things I think that we could be doing better as an industry or as an ecosystem, like, like Keith was saying, is that um, we at Gus are, are incredibly proud of our Gus Quality Shield program, where we are background checking every single agency that is allowed to transact with us on our platforms. You cannot exchange student data with us unless you've been through the Gus Quality Shield process. What we then do is if we find any actors who are acting maliciously in, in the industry, we will terminate them, not just for that school, we'll terminate them across our entire Gus ecosystem. And what would be great is with our relationship with ISEF, for example, if we could start that kind of conversation as well to send a flag to you guys to say, do what you would like with this information, but we've found you know, X, Y, Z. So I think that the, the steps that we're all taking individually as institutions or as agents to guard against the kinds of negative ill intent that we can see happening in the market, uh, that, that is a great first step and it needs to only be the first step. There should be many, many, many more steps to come, which includes us working together as that ecosystem to keep our ecosystem healthy and clean. Fantastic. Well, let's, I mean, we'll dig into, uh, you know, some of the ways to promote good practice and quality assurance and recruiting, and, and, but I don't want to, I don't want to miss the chance to ask Sandeep what, for your perspective on, you know, you're, you're representing an agency that's based here in Canada. So what's your perspective on, on challenges in, in recruitment these days? So um, this topic is really important, especially when we heard about 
M College example or hundreds of students who are about to be deported. Um, so one of the students is being deported on 29th and it's, it is a serious issue. And we need to understand this, that misrepresentation is an offense. It's not a minor mistake. It is an offense. And being an RCIC and authorized representative who is allowed to represent students and immigration cases by the Canadian government, it's really important for us to understand that when student comes to Canada, the journey starts. The journey towards his education, towards his permanent residency starts. And when that individual doesn't get that support system that's required in the country, there are a few issues, for example, housing, or for example, uh, helping a student with how to find a job, the resume writing, and all this stuff. This, these needs to be uh, addressed. But before that's done, the most important thing is that when a student is doing his filing, I have talked to many students. I was in India for the last four months. And the interesting thing is that uh, what I hear is a package system in India, and it is illegal. When uh, I talk to students, they don't even know that the system that they are using is not regulated, it's not correct, and that's the reason we see the huge amount of deportations, huge amount of misrepresentations that are happening, that were happening before too, but they are highlighted now uh, because of the bulk number of students that are coming to Canada. Sorry, did you say a package system? Can you just expand on that, just explain what that is? So, the system that I understood staying uh, in India for four months was that the student doesn't pay anything. The student doesn't pay for the GIC, the student doesn't pay for the fees, and the agent says, okay, it's okay, I'm gonna invest on you, and once you get the visa, you know, instead of $10,000, you pay me $15,000. So it's, for, uh, for the student, it's shortcut. For the student, it's, uh, I'm not saying it's right, it's 100% wrong, uh, but student thinks, okay, I'm paying on success. So he chooses that path, but that path, so the, these deportations too, uh, I was on one of the uh, radio shows, and uh, in that show, a student came up, and he himself said that we did package with this agent, and we got the offer letter and all that stuff, and now we found out that the offer letter was fraudulent. So these issues can only be controlled, firstly, if the system is regulated, and secondly, if we all... Uh, being a uh, consultant, being an institution, and even the government. We all play an equal role into it. And if we, uh, if we know our own responsibilities, then uh, these fraudulent activities can decrease. Otherwise, it's really hard to control them. Well, we've used the R word now, so we can, we can carry on with that part of the discussion too. But let's just, before, like, we'll explore regulation for sure. Um, I think there are lots of different points of view on what role for self-regulation, what role for government oversight or government regulation in some way. But let's just take a step back and think broadly in terms of how agents and educators can, working individually or working together, 
can better ensure that students have just a really excellent study abroad experience, whether they're heading for Canada or, or anywhere else. Uh, Raul, do you want to kick us yeah. off on that one? One uh, big uh, question is about the aggregators, you know, which is coming up all the time. Like students, uh, they just apply online. They don't know who is the actual agent. They're just sending the application through. And once they, uh, you know, arrive in Canada also, even they sometimes don't know it's the actual college or not. So that's the biggest problem uh, starting. And uh, I think uh, institutes should, you know, rethink about them, maybe. And uh, just see, you know, that uh, the contracts, uh, whatever, like it's been uh, done since many years, you know, like uh, there was a quality going on from many years. From past four or five years, the aggregators have taken over. So they're applying bulk applications online. And uh, otherwise, it was quality counseling going on. Students used to meet the agents, see the program details, come in the education fairs. Parents used to ask a lot of questions about scholarships. So many things happening, you know, which was uh, the part of the quality process. But now, these days, you know, so many students, uh, the situation which has happened uh, to these students, 700 uh, odd students, I think uh, that has played a part, you know, uh, for these students who have suffered. So from my uh, uh, like uh, perspective, I would like to see, you know, the students coming and meeting uh, the agents directly, and, uh, and especially in India. You know, if they're guided uh, well from the first day, I think uh, they will study in the same college once they arrive here. They know about the campus, they know about uh, the counselors, so everything is known to them. Yeah, well, there's some, I guess there's something in what you're saying, and, and, and maybe this ties back to your point as well, Kayla, about just having um, a mechanism that reinforces accountability for partners in recruitment, agents, educators, or any other stakeholders in that, in that process. There's something about, when we think about best practices in this area, things that people always talk about are things like trans, transparency, accountability, Right? so that the agent is accountable to the educator and vice versa. Maybe in a system where there are, some of those lines get blurred through larger like agent networks or through package arrangements like Sandeep is describing, it's harder to achieve both of those, both of those things. Keith, is there anything on the radar for you in terms of how you think recruitment can be improved or how we can achieve uh, better practice in, in recruiting uh, in India? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, to pick up um, on what all the panelists have said, and in particular, you know, some of the points that uh, Raul just uh, mentioned, we all collectively need to take some leadership on this and insist on certain values that drive our behavior and the values of the people who we work with. And if our values are not aligned, to some extent, as not to some extent, as Kayla mentioned, if our values are not aligned, you know, um, when you, you know, you're all here in the city and, you know, sometimes you meet someone and you say, I'd like to go for dinner with this person. And other times so you, you think in your mind, I don't want to. <laughs> That's a values driven decision. These are decisions that we make every day. And so as organizations and as an organization, I, you know, similar to, you know, some of the standards at GUS, we have uh, established an international uh, student recruitment policy. 
and you know the policy um, I won't get into all of the details it's on our website and Seneca essentially we speak about a code of conduct and that code of conduct not only drives our relationship with agents but it also has very clear responsibilities and accountabilities for ourselves in full disclosure we are testing our relationship with with aggregators uh, we recognize some of the challenges with that and quite frankly a code of conduct which we implemented last year will start to drive some of our behaviors or some of our requirements in terms of how we engage with different parts of the ecosystem. And so that policy is also tied to about seven other policies that we have uh, within Seneca. So, you know, some difficult conversations had to be had with entities that uh, are working uh, in countries that are sanctioned, for example. And now, increasingly, we are having conversations between our legal department and sometimes members of my team if anonymous tips come in, in terms of gifting and things like that. So it's, it's not a one-way street, that's what I'm trying to say. It starts with ourselves. Uh, we have to lead by example, but then we have to insist in the neighborhoods or the communities that we work in that these are the values that we stand for. Can we partner with you based on those values? Not to disagree with you, but to, to totally disagree with you. No. <laughs> uh, so you had, you had mentioned that you, you feel that there's an opportunity for the lines of responsibility to be blurred in some of these relationships. Um, I, I feel that the responsibility is entirely clear, regardless of who the source of, of this applicant is to me. As soon as an applicant has registered their interest in one of my institutions, that applicant is my personal responsibility. And that means that in the event that I can't be everywhere in the whole world with every applicant at the same time, which considering that with our acquisition of FutureLearn, we now have over two million students in the global university systems portfolio, um, it means that it's my responsibility to develop platforms and systems that assist in guarding against ill-fitting applicants, uh, complete wastes of time. You know, your, your IELTS score isn't high enough, why would I send you to my admissions team? Uh, and it also means that we have to place the best possible applicant in every available seat. And the best possible applicant is not graded on where they came from. The best possible applicant is graded on their fit for my institution's academic criteria. They're, uh, they're finding that our school has a strong value proposition in terms of their future employability, in terms of the connections that we have to industry, the fact that we are developing our courses based on the job needs of the future, which are very clearly outlined by the Canadian government. Uh, all of these things are something that is my responsibility whether or not this applicant was sent through an agent or an aggregator or came themselves. It's entirely irrelevant. It's, it, it's our job as a global university system to have built these systems in such a way that we guard against applicants losing their way, whether, whether that's with help or without. So uh, there are a few points that I would like to highlight. Firstly, um, aggregators, yes. It may be an issue, it may not be the issue. The source where the student comes in might not be the major issue for the institutions. Um, but sometimes I talk to my friends in this industry from different institutions and there is a debate 
there should be a debate, and there is already a debate. When we go on CIC website, it defines uh, who is an authorized representative. So um, just give me a small example. Like, let's assume there is an organization whose job was to conduct English proficiency tests. Who gave them the right to do the filing for the students? And on their websites, it clearly says that they are doing the filing. So is, this, is it right? I don't know. According to me, no. And uh, when we talk about the Brampton, of course, it's, it's a place where most of the students from Punjab love to come. It's the second Punjab. There is a real issue, yes. The accommodation issue is a big issue. The job issue is a big issue in Brampton. But the good thing is, I remember uh, last year, uh, there was a conversation that happened directly between the international students and the city of the Brampton, um, the mayor and their councillors and regional councillors were part of that meetings, and in which there are talks going on that we need to provide uh, student housing and stuff. Saying so, I personally feel, I might be wrong on that, that as uh, Keith said, that the organizations or the institutions who are recruiting a big numbers for that city or for that institution in that city, I think they need to look into this, whether they have enough space for those students to come in. So um, it's, I, I'm not saying that we should blame them or we should blame the city or we should blame the agents, but all this go hand in hand and we all need to discuss on this and we need to find the right solution to it. Uh, but yes, we should accept that these are the real major issues. As Kayla says, it's hard to argue the point that obviously as the institution, like you're responsible for whether, assessing whether that student is a good fit, whether they're, they're the right fit for your institution, whether they're well prepared to, to follow through on the program of study that they're intending. Um, but what you're describing on top of that is like this widening field of stakeholders, right? Or partnerships around that student experience, whether it's housing providers or local governments or, or, or provincial governments even. And how we accomplish that sort of larger conversation, I think, is maybe a bit of, a, is a bit of an open question, right? How do, you, how do you create spaces where you can have uh, uh, a wider discussions with those types of stakeholders? Whether we're talking about policies or tools that are in place at Gus, or whether we're talking about codes of conduct that are in place at Seneca, like those, you could have those examples of, you know, almost like at the level of individual organization, there's an aspect of self-regulation there, right? You're making, you're, you're trying to put systems in place that, that promote that quality of experience for students. Beyond that, is there a need for greater, I mean, Sandeep, you were talking a little bit about regulation earlier. It's something that we bump up against you know, in these conversations, whether it's in a sending market like India or whether it's in a destination like Canada, is there a need for greater government participation or government oversight in some way? That's a million dollar question. Uh, I feel yes, mm -hmm. and 100% there needs to be a regulation. I do understand there is a reg regulatory body in, in Canada, but the problem with that body is that it controls the things that are being done within Canada. They can't control someone who's sitting outside Canada. 
So there needs to be a conversation from one country to another country, or I don't know if this is the right place to say this, but um, I think it is. <laughs> Please. Or the contracts should only be given to people who are who are authorized, so that there is, you know, something. Uh, if something goes wrong, there are individuals who can be held responsible. Now, hundreds of students who are being deported. Who is to be blamed, and who is being punished for that? Except the student. There's no one because the people who have done that were not regulated. Yeah, 100%. So, Rao, I know you have some thoughts about this. We should, we yeah. should go to you. As I was speaking to you earlier also, we have been going into some sessions of uh, Canadian High Commission, you know, and we have been requesting them for an association where agents can share some information. There can be, uh, you know, institutes involved. Because there are some countries like Australia, New Zealand, they have the associations with the agents where ground-level actual information is shared with the High Commission, what's happening and uh, what steps they can uh, take you know, to improve the system. So that really helps. And uh, it's just the communication that is required that time. And uh, I think um, that will help uh, students. Uh, you know, the best uh, help will be for the students and parents because the actual information will be shared with the uh, consulate of what's happening. And agents can give the real-time inform information uh, to the institutes and the High Commission and that association. And that's been really working well in Australia and New Zealand from many years. But uh, in Canada, uh, things, uh, you know, are very slow. And uh, those things uh, not even start, you know, only discussion point, but they don't go through. But overall picture, if we see, you know, for future, if uh, this thing uh, is taken into consideration, something comes up, you know, I think it will benefit all of us. Because communication, information, all those things will be shared. And uh, end of the day, you know, it's a win-win situation for all of us. Oh, that's a great point. I mean, and it's, we're looking for lessons learned, and that's maybe a lesson we can borrow from, uh, from Australia. We would be missing a piece of, uh, of infrastructure to promote some of that discussion. Um, we're drawing towards the end of our session, so I think we should probably just open up the discussion a little bit in case there are any questions from the audience that anybody wants to, uh, wants to offer. Uh, please feel free. Perhaps while we're in the process of circulating mics to people who are anxiously awaiting to ask <laughs> us questions. Uh, I, I think that um, just to, to come back to, to what you guys are saying, um, we, we, we at Gus, we believe in regulation. We are unafraid of regulation. Nobody in this room should be afraid of regulation if you're doing things right. Uh, the saying is that a, a rising tide lifts all ships, right? Uh, that's, that's not true. Some of them sink, and that's okay. That's good, in fact. Uh, so when we're talking about regulation, it's essential that regulation is rooted in um, a, having the best case of the student at heart and the industry at heart. It is not an opportunity to make political hay off of xenophobia and fear of bringing in foreign students or immigrants who are or are not looking to study. And what we can't have is regulation, which is a, a mask for uh, discrimination. And so what we need to have are, the example I gave you this morning, rules like in Germany which are clearly for the benefit of the student where they say if you're bringing your family with you, you have to have an apartment that's a certain size. That is an example of helpful regulation. That's not targeting anybody and it's meant to make sure that you have a positive experience while you're living in the country. 
what we can't have is I have recruited X number of students from Punjab this year and so I don't want any more. I don't have a question, but I just wanted to give you one feedback. Mm -hmm. If you remember the time, 2010, 11, 12, at that time, you know, no institution was concerned about quality because all the admissions was done by authorized agents. But nowadays, due to this aggregator thing, authorized seat agents are getting very less number of seats while these people are getting a huge number of seats, right? So obviously, they are going, in this way, the quality is going to be reduced. And second concern, which I just wanted to raise to the institutions, you know, many of the institutions, not many of the institutions, but a few of the institutions, they give a different quality standards to an agent and different quality standards to their direct applications. So sometimes, you know, if I, I have put an application and that has been rejected by the institution, so, you know, what we did do in that case, we put that application directly to the institution and student will get an acceptance, right? So I think these quality standard must be put by the institution. If, if they'll not th think about it, this, these practices will going to increase because they are giving access to the fraudulent people, they are giving access to the, you know, when people like us who are sitting there, we can see the physical documents and after looking at the physical documents, we can get an idea either it is a genuine one or it is a fraudulent document. They have all those filters available in the form of education agents, but still they, they don't want to, you know, rely on these people because they are not, not giving very good numbers. So I think institution must take this challenge that they should give their maximum number of seats to the people who are physically present in that country. And they should keep a quality check. And if something wrong happens in terms of documentation, they should be directly responsible for the same. I'm sure, I'm sure Keith has, has points he would like to make on this as well. I would, I would just like to, to note, I, I can of course only speak on behalf of my own institutions, but I think that we need to be really careful, at least in our case, when we refer to giving seats to anyone at all, aggregator, agent, whomever, no one gets a seat unless they qualify for that seat. My platforms make it impossible. But it's so. happening with a few of the institutions. I don't want to name it, but yes, it's happening in the market. Sure, I, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so where, where you're absolutely right, and I think that what you said is so poignant, especially in, in this time and in this moment, is that not only do agents have the capability to sit down with some documents and see that they're fraudulent or that they feel the student's not genuine, whatever it is, um, we also have the ability to do the same back for our agent partners. I have the capability to stamp onto all of my offer letters a secret encrypted code that only the agent has, that there's no possible way to fake this document, right? And so as we ask from our agents to, to go the extra mile and to do, do the maximum effort that they can to help us pre-filter these students before they even come to me, we owe our agents the same courtesy in that once you've put in the effort to recruit this applicant and once this applicant has been proven by yourselves and by our platforms to be a good fit, that we're making sure that it is even more obvious in the market when someone else is not than providing you guys the real documents. Obviously, we need to change a culture that says, if you get an offer letter from me, it's gonna have this thing on it that's not able to be replicated and it could only have come from me. And so that also enables our partners out there in the market to be able to say, you can trust me with your child because you can see that I'm in this relationship with an institution who is demonstrating back to me the same concern for quality and student experience. Um, 
and, and Keith, I, I'm, I'm sure that you guys have, have similar opinions. I agree with your principles. Absolutely agree with your principles and agree that um, the institutions have a role to play. 100% agree with you. 100% um, I will tell you that the institutions are one part of a larger ecosystem, as I started to describe at the beginning, which I don't think we would disagree with. The challenge is that we all occupy a lane and we all have a role to play in that lane. And sometimes we're in the lane together. And so, you know, I can't speak for the vast number of institutions, but the, the one that I'm at right now, uh, we set certain standards. Um, we attract a certain type of student. We try to work with certain partners uh, in the field, uh, but also, um, we are reflective on what we're doing. We want to understand the marketplace. I don't want to learn about XYZ just by talking to someone who worked with them. I'm not, we're not going to be cavalier about our relationships, but we have to experience different parts of the ecosystem so that we can discern whether or not these are partners that we want to work with. But we do need to recognize that if something happens in North York, in Toronto, with a student who is an international student, that student has many other lives outside of their life as a student. There are many different other players that influence, have influence over this individual other than, let's say, the institution, Seneca, in, in, in our case. And so one of the one of the challenges that I think we face as a sector is disaggregating uh, you know, who is responsible, who is accountable, who should be communicated with, and who should be informed with respect to a certain issue. And sometimes it could be the institution, sometimes it's you know, the IRCC, sometimes it's um, healthcare, sometimes it's the municipality, there are many, sometimes it's, you know, back home, sometimes it's a banking sector. And so uh, nuancing um, that quality question that you had put in place in, and looking at the root cause and then saying this is where a fix needs to be, I think is an important aspect uh, to address the principles that you just articulated. And so we're into our last couple of minutes. I know we have a couple of hands around the room. And uh, the gentleman in the back, if you, or do you have a mic? Excellent, you have your yeah. mic already. Um, I'm just gonna make it quick, really. I wish that somebody from CIC was here. Mm -hmm. They do have a system, as they call it, DLI reporting. They know every single student who's got visa and come here. What stops them from having a system for us to upload our LOAs? That would be super simple. Nobody's getting in trouble. And all we have to do is just upload the LOA there. And as I'm an IT expert, it just takes very little effort to make this happen. And then the LOAs can get purged every three months, just like what we are doing in our school. Um, I mean, I totally agree with what Kayla said, if I'm saying your name right. There are, there are facts there. Like, fact number one, regulation is there to protect us and students and everything, right? So th the regulations are good. If you're doing everything right, you shouldn't be scared of adding regulation and what, what we're doing. And the second thing that I totally 300% agree is that nobody is taking a seat from me. 
they have to go through my admission requirement and admission process. If they pass it, then we can admit them. Nobody, like we're not selling seats. It's not like chairs that we're selling it. So I guess um, we as a schools, we just can do our due diligence as much as we can, but I hope someday uh, government regulators come to their senses and they figure that all of these problems are because of the regulation that they put in place and legislated, and they can easily fix it if they just use the right consultants. Hmm. Well, there you have it. This session has had it all, including free advice for IRCC. The, uh, so I think as we're frightfully close to the uh, end of time, I think I'll take the chance just to thank everyone for uh, joining the session today. Uh, big thanks to our panel for their contributions uh, and sharing their uh, expertise and experience with, with all of us. Uh, and big thanks to everyone for coming in and joining in the session and for your comments and, and questions throughout. We really appreciate it. And thanks again for joining us today. Up next, Keys to the Market, where this month we discuss one of the world's most popular study destinations, Canada. This section is sponsored by HEM, Higher Education Marketing, and they have a brief message for us. For over 15 years, HEM has helped hundreds of schools and agencies reach their marketing goals. Our services range from paid advertising and search engine optimization to Google Analytics and content development. An education-based customer relationship management solution and student portal are also available, creating smarter admissions management for your school. Our expertise spans a variety of schools around the globe, from K-12 schools and universities to business schools, language centers, and beyond. Through a multi-channel approach backed by data, HEM determines what works and what doesn't, so your school can effectively connect with prospects. So ready to convert more students online? Visit hm.agency to get started. Craig, Canada. Well, um, Canada is, of course, a popular study destination for several reasons. The country has a high-quality education system and a diverse range of programs and institutions to choose from. It's a safe and welcoming country that is known for its multiculturalism and constantly ranked as one of the best places in the world to live. International students are eligible to work part-time while studying and after graduation, they may also be eligible to a, for a post-graduation work permit, allowing them to work in Canada for up to three years. On top of all that, Canada makes it easy for international students to transition to permanent residency, which is, of course is a major draw for many international students. Now, Craig, hearing all this, it is of course no surprise that Canada's foreign enrollment grew by more than 30% last year. But I just wonder how sustainable is that growth? Is Canada not becoming too successful, perhaps, in its student recruitment efforts? Hmm. I mean, it's a fascinating question, and it may be one of the most important questions in the uh, for Canadian educators and other stakeholders in the sector this year. As you say, uh, we're talking about a remarkable growth story. It extends back beyond just the last uh, the dramatic growth of the last year. We, we did an interesting exercise uh, in the years leading up to the pandemic. We looked at, uh, for the five years leading up to, to COVID, uh, what you know were the growth rates of the major study destinations, the top 10 destinations around the world, Canada included, uh, what were the characteristics of that growth, what was driving that growth. And Canada, it won't surprise you to hear, is, was a, a clear leader in terms, of, uh, in terms of the fastest growth over that period. Um, 
but now we see this growth extending into through 2022. Um, if you look back over the last 10 years, the total foreign student population in Canada has increased by nearly a factor of three times over that decade. And I think by anybody's measure, that's a, that's a rapid rate of growth indeed. I think the focus we can anticipate in Canada is going to shift somewhat from achieving growth as has been the focus for many institutions and schools now these last couple of decades, it's going to shift from achieving growth to managing growth. And so managing growth, I think, in a variety of ways, ensuring that services and housing supports and all other important services for students are scaling appropriately for those larger student numbers. That's a clear area of focus for institutions and schools across the country now. Um, and also managing growth in terms of, you know, offering programs through different modes of delivery, diversifying enrollment across a wider field of, of sending markets, uh, we can imagine that those are all going to be important shifts in terms of how international educators approach their work in Canada this year and beyond. That is very interesting. We discussed last uh, month New Zealand, where we saw a shift from qu quantity to quality. Sounds a fairly similar approach here. Of course, different countries, different form, different um, different challenges and opportunities, but it seems to be some parallels there. Yeah, I really think so. It's uh, you know this is not a this is not a new idea. As I say, we talked about it even in the last episode. Whether it's New Zealand or whether it's the Netherlands, uh, you know, we're seeing a number of destinations around the world that are growing very quickly indeed. Uh, they're bumping up against different types of capacity issues, whether that's you know the number of students that can be accommodated in a given program, or the uh, amount of affordable housing that's available for students, or the extent to which support services can be scaled for students. You know, all of those important measures of capacity uh, that affect an international student's experience. And I think that this is probably the beginning of a broader pattern towards destinations taking a more thoughtful and managed approach to the pace and scale of growth uh, in their foreign student enrollments. Right. And those capacity issues, accommodation issues, we hear about that, of course, in cities like Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal. Um, how does that uh, compare to other cities in Canada? Are they like, come on, bring me more students, we keep growing at this pace, or are yeah, they similar? It's a great, it's a great question, and that's another aspect of diversification, in fact, is, you know, historically, uh, foreign student populations in any destination, and Canada is no exception to this, uh, tend to be concentrated in the largest cities. So in the Canadian context, that's, you know, Toronto, uh, Vancouver, Montreal in particular. and. One other aspect of diversification that I think we'll see greater emphasis on here is, you know, distributing those international student populations across a wider field of cities and communities across the country. Certainly, we can find a number of examples of smaller towns and communities that have, you know, important universities and colleges and schools in those locations uh, and could in, in, in further increase their foreign students. I think we'll see more students making those choices to explore a wider field of, uh, of uh, communities within you know a given destination such as Canada. Sounds like a, a great topic to discuss at next year's Canada event uh, again in May but for anyone wishing to connect earlier with agencies that are focusing on group recruitment for Canada or for agencies wishing to work with uh, education providers from Canada then of course you can also attend ISAF Berlin in uh, November this year or ISAF Miami our other North America event in December this year and you'll find all the information about our upcoming events at isap.com slash events. Thank you, Craig. Thanks, Martin. See you next time.
For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit icefmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at icef.com. This episode was sponsored by BMO, Bank of Montreal, and HEM, Higher Education Marketing.